Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm pleased to welcome Patrick Spiro to the podcast. Dr. Spiro is the director and librarian of the American Philosophical Society's Library and Museum in Philadelphia, and we'll be discussing his new book, Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence in the American West, 1765 to 1776, which came out with Norton in 2018. Welcome to the New Books Network, Patrick. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm thrilled to talk about the book. Let's begin, as we always do on this show, by just hearing a little bit about you, about your background, and about how you became interested in history. <laughs> It's a great question, and uh, I could probably talk for far too long uh, about uh, my own career journey and, and personal path uh, to becoming a, a historian and, and now the librarian of the American Philosophical Society. Um, I'll just say briefly uh, that I think uh, an interest in history really was sparked growing up uh, in Massachusetts um, and being surrounded by all these incredible historic sites um, and hearing about these, these stories. Uh, and then as I uh, kind of developed academically, uh, when I went to undergraduate, I, I majored in history. And there I just was thinking I was going to become a lawyer or I was going to go into business, but I really liked history. So why not major in something you liked? And it was uh, as I uh, learned what a historian actually does, um, that I realized that I was just captivated by the idea that history wasn't just about knowing stories or remembering names and dates. But as a historian, you are kind of an active participant in trying to interpret and understand the past and to debate and discuss uh, these ideas with your colleagues and peers. And really, uh, during a, a research project on the Paxton Boys Rebellion, um, which was the basis for my first book, uh, Frontier Country, um, I really realized that this is what I want, wanted to do with the, the rest of my life. And my advisor at the time at James Madison University told me uh, that, you know, you can go on to graduate school, which was not something I'd ever considered um, when, I, when I first uh, stepped on campus. Uh, but I then pursued my Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania, where I took that uh, interest in the Paxton Boys Rebellion, which happened in Western Pennsylvania in 1763 and 64, and developed that into a much larger study on the uh, expansion of Pennsylvania um, from its very inception in the 17th century all the way to the end of the 18th century. Um, that became the, the subject of my first book. I uh, had the great fortune of teaching at Williams College uh, for a few years. And then I had the great fortune of being asked to be the librarian of the American Philosophical Society, uh, which if your readers aren't familiar with, uh, the APS uh, is the nation's uh, oldest learned society. It was founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1743. And uh, one of the things that it has is this incredible research library. Uh, we have over 13 million pages of manuscripts, over 300,000 books. Uh, we have the papers of Lewis and Clark. We have the expedition journals of Zebulon Pike and William Dunbar 
and a whole range of other uh, incredible collections. Our core areas are early American history, Native American and indigenous cultures, and the history of science, I like to say, from Newton and NASA. Um, and within that, uh, uh, the, the early American collection is just a really rich collection on the history of the West in America, especially um, uh, uh, scientific expeditions. Yeah, and I, I can say as someone that's done research at the APS, it really is a pretty magnificent institution that I can't recommend it enough, even just to, to, to stop by and visit if you're in Philadelphia at all. So it sounds like you, you've had an abiding interest in uh, the, the history of the early American West for some time, but can you tell us the story about how you came to write this book in particular on the early American West and the Pennsylvania frontier during the lead up to the American Revolution? Sure. I, you know, I never would have thought uh, uh, that I would write uh, so many books in, uh, on, on the West. I grew up, as I said, in Massachusetts, close to the ocean. Uh, I had dreams of somehow uh, finding a career in which I could be close to and involved, if not on the ocean itself. Um, but it really was that story of the Paxton Boys Rebellion, which happened in Western Pennsylvania in 1763. It was something I'd never heard of before, uh, perhaps growing up uh, as I did in Massachusetts and on the water. Uh, the idea of the, the frontier and uh, uh, Pennsylvania's role in the revolution were, were all kind of new to me. And so I worked on that first book. And it was during that book that I came across another rebellion, uh, which is the subject of uh, frontier rebels. And that's the Black Boys Rebellion, uh, which happened in 1765, uh, the same year as the Stamp Act. And one of my main questions has always been, um, how can we understand the coming of the American Revolution in the West. Um, I feel like we have, have grown up outside of Boston. You know, I know about the Sons of Liberty. We know about the Stamp Act Rebellion. We know about the Boston Massacre. We know about the Tea Party. We know how many of these events, uh, you know, help unite urban centers, whether it's in New York City or Philadelphia or Charleston. Uh, and so I've, I've always been interested since I kind of began this journey as a historian and what was happening outside of these urban seaports. How did the West and the East uh, come together? How did the West experience what we call the imperial crisis that led up to the American Revolution? And um, during that research for my first book, um, the Black Boys were kind of a, a small piece of this much larger study. But I, I realized then that the Black Boys told an incredible story that helps understand the imperial crisis that the British Empire was facing, the imperial crisis as experienced by colonists, especially those living uh, on what they called the frontier, and by indigenous peoples who were trying to confront both this new enlarged British Empire in the wake of the Seven Years' War, and as they were trying to fend off the encroachments of colonists on, on the frontier. And so this one story encapsulated so much, uh, and I realized I couldn't do it justice in this first book, and that the only way to really do it justice was to just tell the story um, as a standalone uh, project. And so that's, that's the origins of Frontier Rebels. So let's get into the book a little bit, and maybe we can begin by just setting the scene here. So tell us about where, where is the West in this book? What is, what is the, the, the British Western frontier in the middle decades of the 18th century look like? Who lives there and what are their lives like? What's the context for this story? Yeah, when, um, so when I taught at Williams, I would teach a course on the early American frontier, and I was always uh, surprised by how many of the students were coming from California or Utah, Colorado, because um, they were thinking that the early American frontier was going to deal with where they grew up. And that was a really interesting um, experience for me because uh, I had to talk to them about how Pittsburgh uh, is the frontier that we're going to be talking about in this course. <laughs> um, so, um, 
in the mid 18th century, uh, you know, people would describe uh, Pittsburgh, uh, at least in, in the mid-Atlantic, as the frontier. You might think of Western uh, Virginia. Um, uh, that's that's the frontier regions uh, in, in for, for, for many folks. Um, and, you know, what is life like on uh, that frontier? I, I can talk about the Pennsylvania frontier probably the best. And I, I really think it's an incredibly diverse community, probably more diverse than people realize. Um, I just uh, um, read an article that's forthcoming in Pennsylvania history. It's by an archaeologist who has uncovered uh, at a uh, fort uh, that they were doing a dig at um, some Islamic medallions um, that were likely worn by an enslaved person at this fort sometime in the mid 18th century. Um, so I, the, the, it, there you have folks from uh, Scots-Irish, you have Germans, you have English, you have Quakers, you have a whole range of um, religious uh, denominations living on the frontiers. And then, of course, you have a whole range of Native American communities and groups. Um, many different uh, Native nations are living alongside, um, you know, uh, these these colonists. And so and um, what, one of my main characters in my book is somebody named James Smith. And um, I'm I'm nearly certain that Smith was, uh, you know, fluent in uh, English. Uh, in uh, German, uh, and at least one Native American language. So you can just imagine how people, this fluidity that existed on on the frontiers at that time. You begin the book also with a, a sort of a list of, of, of characters that are going to shape the, the, the story here. Uh, this is a very personality-driven story, um, and I found this list very helpful. We don't really have time to go over each and every uh, uh, character that you list here, but maybe we can talk about four of the main characters. Uh, George Crowen or George Krogan, uh, Thomas Gage, James Smith, and Pontiac. Can you tell us kind of a brief thumbnail sketch of each of those people and why they matter to the story you're telling? Sure, that's... that's, that's, that's... Those are the key characters, uh, uh, Stephen, um, and, and it's great that you, you highlighted those because uh, what my book uh, hopes to do is to try and tell um, the imperial crisis as this conflict between three different perspectives. Um, one is the perspective of the British Empire. Uh, the other is the perspective of the colonists. And the third is the perspective of uh, native peoples um, who are uh, living, uh, uh, you know, uh, in uh, the greater Ohio uh, River Valley. And uh, each one of these kind of embodies one, one aspect of that. Um, you have Thomas Gage, uh, who is uh, tasked with kind of overseeing the transition from uh, pe uh, from war to peace. Um, after the Seven Years' War, as I'm sure many of these your listeners know, um, the French relinquished uh, claims to all the land uh, east of the Mississippi River. That became ostensibly um, the territory of the British Empire. Um, and Gage, uh, you know, one of the things the British Empire really uh, confronted also in the wake of this war is an incredible amount of debt. And Gage's, uh, you know, kind of charge was, we, from, from his superiors in, in London, was, you know, we cannot afford another war on our frontiers. We need to reduce costs. We need to open the road to Native communities so that uh, the uh, raw materials in the interior can be integrated into the British Empire's kind of mercantile vision. And so Gage is, is tasked with that. Um, uh, uh, Pontiac, uh, on, on the other hand, uh, is a native leader uh, in Ottawa um, who, uh, who's, you know, among many others, uh, trying to deal with this newly enlarged British Empire 
having displaced their um, traditional allies, the French. Um, they are very nervous about the intentions of the British Empire. They fear that they're going to be subjugated by this empire. They feel that they're going to lose their sovereignty. Um, and some of the things that Gage and his uh, predecessor, uh, Amherst, uh, did, um, you know, cutting back on ceremonial treaties, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 manning forts in the interior, all these things sent signals to native peoples uh, who were nervous about the British Empire that the empire's intentions were in fact to subjugate and displace them. And so uh, Pontiac and a group of other native allies um, kind of launched uh, an offensive to assert their sovereignty uh, and autonomy from the British Empire in 1763. So this is exactly what Gage had been uh, hoping to avoid. Um, and then there is uh, George Krogan, uh, who is in 1765 tasked with trying to enact a temporary truce uh, between Pontiac and his allies and the British Empire. And his uh, um, orders are to go out to Fort Pitt um, with a uh, pack train of goods uh, to uh, initiate an initial um, alliance with the Delaware and perhaps the Shawnees, to then travel down the Ohio River in search of Pontiac and to come to some temporary terms with Pontiac um, to reestablish and to show the sincerity of the British Empire um, uh, that they desire peace uh, and to set the groundwork for Pontiac to eventually travel to Sir William Johnson uh, outside Albany and enact a more formal um, peace uh, ceremony. And then there's James Smith, uh, who is the leader of the Black Boys. And Smith has a very uh, remarkable um, life history uh, that I probably can't uh, uh, give justice to right now. Um, but Smith was born on the frontiers of Pennsylvania. And during the Seven Years' War, uh, he's captured um, by a uh, uh, Native American um, war party and adopted into a Mohawk community and spends a, a large part of uh, the Seven Years' War actually traveling within uh, Native communities as uh, a member of their community. And then in 17, I think 60 or 61, he's eventually, um, as part of a prisoner exchange, sent back to his community in Pennsylvania. And so in 1765, as George Krogan is heading west, James Smith mobilizes a group of his neighbors to stop Smith's uh, peace pack, tra pack train of goods that are meant to help cement a peace with Native communities. Uh, and that really is the spark of the rebellion that I talk about. Um, they destroy this enormous pack train of goods. It creates this crisis uh, for Thomas Gage and others trying to manage the empire. It really puts uh, at risk Krogan's peace mission. And it really, to, to my mind, helps uh, encapsulate and crystallize what the imperial crisis is going to mean for colonists living on the West in the West. Well, let's go over that story a little bit. Um, and it's a story that you tell remarkably well in this book. The, the As I was I was saying before the interview started, that the writing of this book really flies off the page. You tell these stories uh, very well. And I'm thinking that maybe we can just kind of go step by step and talk about how this mission that you describe Krogan going on, how this erupts into this larger crisis. So let's begin with the mission itself. Where is George Krogan going? What is his goal? And what is he bringing with him in particular? Because really it's kind of the contents of of this pack train that really sparks a lot of the the problems that would arise later on yeah um so krogan uh is gage uh, provides krogan with some funds to acquire 
goods. Um, he doesn't specify what goods Krogan can uh, purchase, um, but Krogan then kind of goes outside of his uh, orders, um, exceeds his orders, if you will, and partners with uh, a Philadelphia uh, merchant firm to buy uh, an enormous amount of goods. We don't precisely know how much money uh, he ended up spending for goods, uh, but it was certainly um, uh, probably close to 15 uh, to uh, 20,000 British pounds worth of material. So maybe 10 times what Gage had said. And he ends up buying all sorts of different things. Um, he buys so many white shirts that the city of Philadelphia uh, purportedly runs out of shirts for a period of time. And Krogan has to commission a group of women to hand sew shirts. Um, there's, I think, 5,700 white shirts is one estimate for how many, how much clothing he was shipping west. Um, there's also, uh, and this is where the real controversy comes in, um, there's also uh, gunpowder uh, that is being shipped west along with some alcohol. And uh, to me, that shipment of ammunition really encapsulates the crisis uh, on the, of the, the imperial crisis. And the reason why is Krogan, um, when he's going to defend himself, you know, will say that, you know, when peace treaties uh, are enacted, there's a ceremonial exchange of goods to show symbolically um, the new alliances being forged, uh, you know, around these uh, treaty fires. And so, you know, um, hypothetically it would be, you know, native community, uh, native leaders would be uh, providing uh, with furs to, say, the diplomat, in this case, George Krogan. And then Krogan, on his part, would ceremonially give arms and ammunition, something that Native peoples really desired, just like the British desired the raw materials of fur. And the idea was to show that they are now friends who trust each other. And so ammunition uh, to Krogan was a necessary part of diplomacy. Now, the problem happens uh for those who are living on uh, the frontiers, people like James Smith, who had been living uh, really on the front lines of what was almost a decade-long war, uh, first with the Seven Years' War and then with Pontiac's War, um, they really were communities, civilian communities, who had become highly militarized and lived in um, you know, fear of a future war. And so to them, the idea that ammunition could be exchanged with these communities, these native uh, groups who they'd just been fighting against, to them was an, an anathema. They, they could not accept that. And so as uh, Krogan's pack train is heading west, it meets greater and greater resistance, um, ultimately culminating with a series of uh, attacks that essentially destroy a large portion of that pack train. Yeah, and it was actually it was kind of funny reading this book as someone who has lived in both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and done the drive across I-76 many, many, many times in my life, seeing all the various exits on that highway that I recognize popping up again and again, like Carlisle and Sidling Hill, all these places that I recognize from my own drives are playing really crucial roles in here. And Sidling Hill, if I remember correctly, is actually the, the, the site where this crisis is kind of triggered when the black boys stop. Krogan's uh, uh, caravan and destroy those goods. And maybe we can spend a minute talking more about the Black Boys, because we, we talked about James Smith, but it's a whole group of, of people. Can you talk a little bit more about who these people are, why they call themselves the Black Boys, and, and sort of what their, their mission is, what their goal is? Yeah, so um, Sidling Hill uh, 
and, and what was remarkable to me is I ended up traveling out to this area. I always feel like you have to see what you're writing about and try and know it. And I met a lot of people in the community and there's even a movement within the community to um, really mark Sidling Hill and, and the towns that surround it as the start of the American Revolution. And the reason why is because as Krogan's pack train is heading further and further west, there's greater and greater resistance. And when they um, stop outside of uh, the town that is today Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, they're really confronted by a group of colonists um, who draw their arms, uh, tell them to stop. They can't go any further. And eventually, uh, you know, after night, that pack train heads further west and it gets close to uh, what is today McConnellsburg, um, which is sits at the the uh, the foot of Sidling Hill. And if you, and as you said, if you travel west of Pittsburgh, Sidling Hill is a major exit on, on the highway. Um, and so uh, the, the reason this is so, uh, such a pressure point for colonists is if they make it past Sidling Hill, there really are um, no more uh, um, communities till, till Pittsburgh. There are some forts, but there really aren't any colonial settlements. And so if, if this pack train is able to make it past Sidling Hill, they're going to be able to make it all the way to Pittsburgh. And so um, a group of, of men led by James Smith, uh, calling themselves the Black Boys, attack that pack train of goods uh, in the early morning hours and destroy you know, an enormous amount of it. And they're called the Black Boys uh, because they are dressed as Native Americans. Um, they adopt Native American uh, tactics, tactics that James Smith said he learned while he was uh, adopted into a Mohawk community during the Seven Years' War and they blacken their faces to disguise who they are. And what ends up happening is after they destroy that initial pack train of goods, uh, the commandant of Fort Loudoun uh, sees this as just in the same way that, you know, British troops in the urban seaports see colonial resistance movements as unlawful and outside the bonds, uh, bounds of propriety. The commandant of Fort Loudoun reacts the same way and he sends out a uh, regiment into these colonial settlements searching for uh, members of the Black Boys. And uh, they end up arresting a uh, two men, if I uh, remember correctly, and seizing a series of, of guns and other property and bringing them back to Fort Loudoun. And so this only escalates uh, the situation more, where the Black Boys now feel as if the British Army has invaded into civilian law, you know, searching and seizing Men, that's something that sheriffs or justice of the peace should do, not the British military. The British military is supposed to defend them, not um, become a policing force. And so uh, in the days that follow, the Black Boys, which started as this relatively small band that attacked this pack train of goods at Sidling Hill, mushrooms into hundreds of uh, men, all of whom are now supporting uh, James Smith. And they eventually lay siege to Fort Loudoun to try and uh, free uh, their uh, fellow colonists who are uh, held there and to seize back the guns. And after a siege of, I think, two days, um, they, uh, the uh, commandant of Fort Loudoun uh, releases the prisoners but continues to hold on to the guns. And then, and this is to me what really makes the Black Boys more than just some sort of riot. And the days that follow, um, the Black Boys become a, a frontier-wide movement in which there's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, all the way to Fort Loudoun. So um, more than 100 miles, probably close to 200 miles on all the roads. There are men who call themselves black boys 
And if you're traveling on those roads, you're liable to search uh, um, and the, to, to see if, to make sure you're not carrying any contraband or anything that they believe should not be traded with native peoples. And they even start handing out passports. So they're really starting to assert this extra legal official quasi government function. And when you think about that in conversation with what we know about what's happening in the urban seaports with the Sons of Liberty and the committees of correspondence, you actually see something happening in parallel. Now they're happening for very different reasons, but the process that's leading towards revolution, I think uh, has some really interesting parallels in these two cases. I still want to ask this question of why, though. This, so you have this attack on on Krogan's convoy, which yeah. triggers this this larger larger crisis. And on the one hand, you know, you, you talk about Governor John Penn, who's the governor of the colony of Pennsylvania, and he seems kind of ill-equipped to handle this crisis. But I still I still think it's it's worth getting a little bit more into why this spirals so so incredibly. How do each of the levels of governance react to this rebellion, and then how do the the rebels themselves kind of react in kind? Because it's you have this kind of uh, action and reaction process that, that kind of brings things out of control. Yeah. Um, so, so to get at the core of the why um, is something that it really is a, um, a thesis I started to develop in my first book, Frontier Country, and uh, I think really comes to full fruition in, in Frontier Rebels. And that's um, the sense that there is a great divide over what the future of the West is going to look like. Um, for those that are managing the British Empire, um, you know, they draw a proclamation line in 1763. The king says colonial settlement shall not go past the Appalachian Mountains. They do so because they don't think they can manage such an enlarged empire. They can't afford it. They're worried about colonists getting too far from the seaports and therefore becoming more independent minded. And they're worried about Indian wars. And they really want to have what they call and what native peoples call an open road uh, between uh, what's increasingly called Indian country, which is the Ohio and the Illinois regions, um, and uh, the, the uh, kind of um, colonists uh, to, to the east. Um, now, for the colonists, what I have argued is that over the course of the Seven Years' War, um, they developed a much different view of the West and of Native peoples, where those managing the British Empire can see a way in which Native nations can be allies, trading partners. Um, colonists begin to see Native peoples through very racialized lens as enemies, as inherent enemies uh, that they can never trust. Um, and so that's where you begin to see this divide developing between these three very different constituents. And in so many ways, that ammunition represents uh, this, this divide over what the future of Indian relations are going to look like in the British Empire over what the future of even the West might look like in the British Empire. To colonists, the idea that ammunition could be exchanged with Native peoples, uh, they, they can't imagine that because they have begun to see Native peoples as, as they increasingly say, just describe them as Indians, as one whole, one group that are inherently enemies and future enemies, uh, where the British Empire um, is able to see as Benjamin Franklin himself articulates in some of his pamphlets, you know, that there are different native nations. You can have alliances with some, you can have alliances even with all, but that they are, um, they, they are not one coherent people. They are people that can be, you know, uh, allies and even integrated into the British empire. Um, and, and so when you get at the why, I think that's the why uh, the rebellion, uh, the, the why um, the, the black boys kind of formed. 
in, in, in terms of your question about governance, I mean, this raises, um, the black boys raise so many um, issues about governing the British Empire. It exposes weaknesses within the British Empire's kind of structure. Um, there are so many people at the time that are talking about the need to reform the British Empire, especially as it becomes larger. Um, and the black boys really get at the core of some of these issues. Um, the first one, one of the key um, unstated issues is, is who actually has authority, you know, on, on the frontiers? Is it the British army in these forts? Is it the colonial government with the justice of the peace, with the sheriff, with the governor, as you mentioned? Um, or is it the black boys themselves uh, who are trying to take uh, authority and saying that, you know, neither the British Empire nor the colonial government actually adequately represents them? And so you have this great contest over governance that is really coming to the fore during this clash. And then by the time we get to the, the late 1760s, you start to see the British government begin to undertake reforms. And among those reforms is dismantling forts throughout this frontier region, which on the one hand seems like a victory for the people dwelling on the frontiers. They were being granted seemingly more independence. The British army is again, seemingly withdrawing. And yet they interpret this action and, and these reforms generally very differently as another step toward British imperial tyranny. So why is that? How is the dismantling of these forts and these larger reforms, how is this kind of, uh, uh, how does it become connected with this wider colonial uh, critique of imperial governance? Yeah, no, that's um, that really gets at uh, uh, at kind of the heart of uh, you know. There's so many interesting um, contradictions, if you will, of the of, of the black boys. Um, on the one hand, um, they have an incredible, incredible distrust of um, their colonial government to the east. They feel the east is elite. It is uh, represents the wealthy merchants. It's disconnected from their needs. Um, they say the same thing about the British Empire. Um, but at the same time, they're almost always asking for more support, more government support. And this is one of the contradictions that I think uh, really comes out in, in the Black Boys' rebellion. And so they very much see, on the one hand, the dismantling of um, Fort Loudoun and the other forts close to them as something of a victory, on the other hand, uh, when Fort Pitt is um, uh, eventually dismantled in the early 1770s, they see this as the British Empire turning their back on colonists. You know, the fundamental, and this I think gets at what the frontier means in the 18th century, and this has been one of my main arguments uh, in both of my books, um, is that in the 18th century, the frontier had a very concrete meaning, and it was the site of invasion, there's all this political theory. If you read the pamphlets about, you know, the political body and how the various constituent parts are related to each other, the idea is that the, the frontiers are the limbs of the political body, and they provide defense to protect the body as a whole, but they also require support. And so what I've argued is the frontier is the, the site in which government is either formed or lost. The people on the frontier and Franklin has a great uh, line uh, about this that I'll paraphrase that the, the front people that live on the frontier um, expect defensive support from the government in exchange for which they provide their allegiance and obedience to government. And so what you see happening and what I argue is that the imperial crisis really breaks down that bond between the governed and, the, and their government. They see that their government is not providing the support they expect. Therefore, they are rebelling against it. 
And this starts on the frontier with people like the Black Boys. And in my earlier work, I talk about the Paxson Boys Rebellion. But pretty soon, there are arguments you begin to see coming in other pamphlets so that you have Franklin and Jefferson and others writing about how the king has really removed his, um, by, by abandoning these forts, abandoning the frontiers, they've, the king has really um, you know, uh, failed to do his duty to his subjects, and therefore they have the right to rebel and declare themselves independent. So in sum, kind of zooming out a little bit, what role does the West play in the approach of the American Revolution? And then once the the revolution and the Revolutionary War begins, what role does the region play? And in particular, what role do the people that we've discussed here play in the course of events? Yeah, um, so this is something I've I've, I've thought a a lot about. What's what's interesting to me is that I, I, I absolutely believe there was an imperial crisis on the West, in the West. Um, I think it was different in different places. Um, this book is looking at uh, uh, you know what I think was the the hot zone of the British Empire's west at the at the time. Um, but there were similar crises happening in North Carolina, something called the Regulator Movement, uh, South Carolina, another uh, movement also called the Regulator Movement, but separate from the one in North Carolina. And then in New England, you have a series of kind of border conflicts uh, between, uh, say, New Hampshire and New York or Massachusetts and New York. And there's really an incredible amount of disorder in the West. Um, it really shows the British Empire uh, has not learned, ha- has been unable to adapt, um, has been unable to establish its authority on its very fringes, um, which is where I think the, the essence of whether or not an empire can rise or fall is how it much authority it has is on these very fringes of, of settlement. And so I think the West um, has an, an important imperial crisis. It shows the, really the, the weakness of the British Empire. And for the coming of independence in particular, um, the issues that the Black Boys were talking about um, were disconnected or separate from those in the East. Uh, when I started all my research, I wanted to know how did people on the frontiers react to the Stamp Act or the Townsend duties or the word of the Boston Massacre. And what I found is there's virtually zero discussion of these events on the frontiers, at least in Pennsylvania. They're focused much more on Indian relations, on the military, um, on their relationships uh, to the Eastern government where they see themselves unrepresented. And so there's, a, but what this leads to is even if they're, the cause is different, in 1776, there is a similar conclusion between East and West, and that is that you know the only people who can who they can trust to govern are themselves, and that's where you see a general sense that the king uh, and the British Empire is inadequate to managing them, that, and that the only people that they can trust are themselves, and that leads to the kind of the, the this marriage of East and West during the American Revolution. And then when you look out further, um, I, I think this is a very brief moment of conjunction between East and West, because so much of American history going forward is this ongoing divide between East and West. Um, so they come together in 1776, but I think that's that's only a temporary thing. And if you look at the Whiskey Rebellion um, and all the other events that have happened, you know, in this, uh, uh, you know, between the East and West, it continues through the 19th um, century. Uh, in terms of the, you know, the Black Boys themselves. Uh, many of them, uh, you know, James Smith is, it kind of embodies this where 
Uh, Smith is actually eventually elected to the uh, uh, revolutionary government of Pennsylvania. He helps write their constitution, which is one of the most radically democratic of all the constitutions written uh, during the American Revolution. It gives equal representation to the frontier counties, the thing that they had been asking and begging for uh, beforehand. And then uh, eventually he joins the Continental Army. Um, he serves under Washington for a period of time, uh, but he's frustrated with this, um, this, this style of warfare. And so uh, he ends up um, uh, returning uh, to his uh, community. Uh, th at this point, he's living close to Pittsburgh and he mobilizes again his own militia um, in order to, uh, you know, uh, fight a, a frontier war. Um, and, and so it, and Smith continues to go on, actually, and he uh, moves to Kentucky and serves in its earliest legislature. So in so many ways, I think um, Smith embodies uh, what I call the frontier revolution, where one of the things that, you know, the colonists were um, so frustrated with was a sense that the British Empire was trying to hem them in to the east. And so what do you have? What do you see after the American Revolution? I think the most radical area of the revolution is actually the West. I mean, if you think about what the British Empire's policy towards the West was before the revolution um, and what it was after, it's almost a complete 180. You know, the British Empire is trying to maintain peace. They're trying to create a clear line between Indian country and colonial settlements. They want an open road uh, to uh, Indian country. And what do Smith and others do when they take control of the government? You know, it's kind of an unfettered expansion, a series of Indian wars. Um, the, the British Empire is really completely overturned in the West in their policy is as well. Whereas in the East, you know, the leaders uh, in the East were still the leaders uh, in the East afterwards. And there isn't that type of fundamental change in policy um, that I think you see in the West. I want to ask one question about uh, methodology before we begin to wrap up here, because you wrote this book in a pretty interesting way. Um, the, it's very much an exercise in storytelling. Uh, all historians are storytellers, but this book really, it reads almost like historical fiction, but of course it's not. It's, 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 it's history. It's rooted in very deep primary source research. It's a very accessible read in that way, particularly the dialogue. I mean, I really flew through this, this book reading it myself. I finished it in practically no time. And you, you, you talk about this a bit toward the end of the book, where you say that you hope that this book might start a conversation about how we write history. So what do you do differently in this book? And what do you see as the limitations of more traditional academic history writing? What were you trying to correct in that sort of writing? Yeah, so I, I was actually inspi inspired to write the book, especially the way that I did uh, by teaching my students at, at, at Williams College, uh, where um, they, they were always willing to, to read um, and they really wanted a book that was accessible, um, relatively short, um, and, and, but still made a point. And what I had with the Black Boys Rebellion was this incredible primary source um, uh, base to work from. There are so many depositions, um, so much reporting this, largely in manuscripts. I mean, the interesting thing about the Black Boys is this is a massive rebellion that gets the attention of people as far as London um, are, are aware of this and they and it feeds into their sense that the frontier is this anarchic place. Um, but it's almost all in manuscript uh, and, and it's all these depositions and discussions. And I realized that I could take those depositions and without, you know, um, creating my own dialogue, use those as the basis for conversations uh, that did happen historically um, and really try use the sources uh, as my my guiding light and to have to really get those voices um, uh, centered. 
And so I tried to uh, develop dialogue. Um, again, the dialogue is coming from the sources themselves. Rather than trying to embed quotes or long quotes in, in paragraphs, um, as a way to make it read more like like a novel, um, believing that that might be able to, you know, translate the the work of scholars to hopefully a, a wider audience. Um, and I've been really happy. I was uh, a little nervous. I didn't know how people would react, but um, uh, the the response, at least in the uh, the reviews that I've read, have been very positive. As have been all the feedback I've I've received uh, anecdotally. And one of the things that you do that I really appreciated is you you play with dialogue a little bit. Maybe play with is not the right term to use, but you you clean up a lot of the dialogue to just make it read more accessibly. I mean, manuscript third-person discussions of what someone said to another person, they can read in a kind of dry way. And you adjust the language just ever so slightly to make it read more like natural dialogue that real people may have had. Uh, I really appreciated that. And what kind of led you to making that particular choice? Because that was one of the most effective small changes, small choices that I thought you made in this book. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I'm ever going to do it again, because I've been working on another <laughs> project. And um, it, it really was the sources lent themselves to it, Stephen, um, mm -hmm. because it was a deposition. And so it was simple. Like you said, it, it was very simple changes. For instance, if somebody's recounting a conversation and it was in the past tense, I could make it into the present tense. Or if, um, uh, it, you know, if they were using the third person, I could make it the first person because they were recounting some other conversation they had. And it did allow me to, to, to develop better uh, a dialogue or exchange that was recounted. Several times there were cases where James Smith would recount an exchange and then James Grant, who is the leader of the, um, or Charles Grant, um, was the leader of the of Fort Loudon. They would recount the same conversation. They basically were in, in um, agreement with what was said. Uh, so I could, I felt comfortable adjusting that uh, to make it feel like it was, it was present dialogue, if you will, rather than just trying to, um, you know, I, you, you can get verbose by trying to make it the, the, the dialogue work grammatically. Um, and that's where I think sometimes you can lose, lose readers. Yeah, it, it made this book seem very cinematic. And uh, my, my fingers are crossed that it gets picked up by HBO or something yeah. that can tell, tell this story. Well, you know, the interesting um, thing about that is it, it, this yeah. was uh, originally, um, this was one of John Wayne's first movies. Was oh, right. You talked about the, that. Yes, yeah, yes. Was something on yeah. the Black Boys. And I've, I've often wished it would be really interesting to see how one would produce a movie that deals with these issues in the 21st century versus, you know, the much... Uh, you know, more, uh, you know, a, a John, a typical John Wayne-esque movie from the early 20th century uh, in which um, in some ways uh, Wayne and the interpretation of the event was really um, embracing the black boy's view of the frontier rather than taking a much more complex view of the individuals and putting it in the, in the true context of its time where there are these vying forces um, and, and the, the colonists weren't necessarily inherently the good guys, if you will. Um, I, I just I would love to because then you'd have two films that were very much in dialogue with each, with each other, interpreting the same event in two very different ways. Um, I don't know how to do it, but it'd be fun if, if, if it could happen. <laughs> well, that kind of gets at, at my next question, um, which is and this is not an easy question. Uh, my 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 guests often tell me that, but it's one that I think is important to, to kind of to, to summarize what we've been talking about here. If there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from this book with, kind of come away from this book understanding, what might that takeaway be? Yeah, um, and this is where I think I, I get to it in my conclusion, and and that's that 
Um, my view is that the politics of the West uh, has largely been overlooked in our understanding of the American Revolution and our nation's founding. I think interest in it has, has waxed and waned, but you really, if you want to understand our, our present, you have to understand the past. And so much of the politics of what I call frontier politics of the 18th century, I think really remain embedded in our cultural DNA. You know, a incredible um, distrust of uh, what are seen as distant governments uh, who are not serving the interests of more rural uh, Americans. Um, a, a, a sense uh, 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 of, uh, you know, a, a desire for government both to do more, but to also stay out of their lives. I mean, so much of our politics you can see in these 18th century moments. And so I think to really understand their roots, their origins um, today, you really have to go back to the American founding. And then finally, this book came out a few years ago. It came out in 2018. Uh, can we get a preview of what you've been working on in the interim? Do you have another project uh, in the works? Yeah, well, it's, it, it, it's funny. Uh, the pandemic has, has really redirected uh, my, my research, my life, just like I'm sure so many others. Um, I had decided that I had done enough with the uh, frontier in the West and that I was going to shift my gaze across the Atlantic and um, take a look at, at London uh, during the American Revolution. The APS, uh, one of our great treasures, we have the 70% of the papers of Benjamin Franklin, we're kind of the chief repository of Franklin's correspondence. And I was delving into um, his ties with London politics and the ways in which uh, he was um, uh, aiding uh, uh, spies and others in, in London. And I was well uh, underway on a project. And then with the closure of libraries, uh, I had to put that on pause. And interestingly enough, I uh, have once again shifted my gaze to the West. And um, I've been uh, delving into the life of somebody named uh, Andre Michaud, uh, who was a French botanist uh, sent to uh, the United States uh, in 1786 by um, the King of France. Uh, and he spent uh, a little bit over a decade in the United States traveling um, as far uh, south as Florida, as far north as almost the Hudson Bay, and as far west as the Mississippi River. And he is, uh, I would argue, one of the greatest uh, explorers uh, of uh, the continent until Lewis and Clark. Uh, I don't know of anybody else who quite uh, probably covered as much ground as, as he did. Um, and his story is largely uh, untold. And uh, the APS holds his journals. Um, and I've been kind of using those to, to and explore um, what his life and experience uh, in the 1780s and 90s uh, can tell us about the early American Republic. Uh, and what's interesting is uh, it, the culmination is he's involved in a, uh, a plot um, to try and invade uh, Spanish Louisiana. Uh, he tr tries to organize a group of Kentuckians uh, led by uh, George Rogers Clark to mobilize a militia to attack uh, Louisiana in 1793 and seize it from Spain and create an independent republic. Um, so even though I was thinking I was going to be moving across the Atlantic, I find myself once again sucked into these uh, stories of the West. That must be one of the wonderful things about working for an institution like the APS is that you can basically close your eyes and choose a, a box of manuscripts at random and come across something that's worth writing an entire book about. Yeah, well, I often joke that uh, I, the vault taunts me because uh, I find myself uh, stuck behind my desk uh, uh, far too often. Uh, but interestingly, the pandemic has created this opportunity for me to, 
to delve into uh, the sources more. And it's, it's been so great um, to be able to do that. Uh, but our collection is absolutely um, astounding and incredible. And I, I hope other people that aren't familiar with it will, will check it out um, because we just, uh, anybody that's interested in early American history, uh, interested in the West, we have an enormous amount of material um, all the way up through the 19th century, uh, material on, on the gold rush, uh, on early mining, um, to, to check out our materials. Uh, I'm sure we probably have something that, that might be of interest. Dr. Patrick Spiro is the librarian and the director of the American Philosophical Society's Library and Museum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His new book is Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence in the American West, 1765 to 1776, which came out with Norton in 2018. Thank you so much for joining me today, Patrick. Thank you. This was great. <laughs>